Are there certain types of stressors you may be able to apply to yourself ahead of time, knowing that you may encounter a large stressor, right? Can you prepare your body and your system, your brain and your physiology to potentially better handle that outcome? Welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple. If you want proven nutrition strategies to help you build a better body and create the energy to show up for your family without overly restrictive and unrealistic dieting, then you're in the right place. Make sure to subscribe and enjoy this episode. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, welcome back to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing? Thank you so I'm, much for having me on again. I appreciate dude, it's, it. A, it's an absolute pleasure. It's it's always an honor to have a conversation with you, let alone to have a conversation where I get to share it with all of our listeners. So, um, you know, privileged to have you back on. It's been a couple years since our yeah, last. I know crazy. We've, had, we've had conversations <laughs> prior, but it's been a couple years since our last interview that it was um, episode number 66. Hmm. And here we're probably going to be somewhere in the 140s. But there was March of 2019, and wow, oh, wow. Fair, a fair bit has happened <laughs> since then. What we dive into in episode 66 is quite a lot about what exactly is metabolic flexibility. We talk about is flexible dieting certification, and you know, we, we talk a little bit about keto, which I'd I'd love to just touch on in this call. But uh, make sure you guys jump in and listen to that. In fact, you may even want to consider pausing this episode, going back, having a listen, and then coming back. Um, so tell us. Uh, Mike, what has been going on? You just got back from Costa Rica. It sounds like you had quite the trials and tribulations down there. It was interesting. Uh, we were we were down there. My wife and I went down there for planned to be about a week, and then we went to leave. And like everywhere else now, you need testing in order to get out, which we've done before. I've done for traveling all the time. You ever get like those weird feelings where you're just nervous about it and you don't know why? I was just kind of like twitchy. So we go and we get the testing and then we have to wait before you can even get in the airport. So we're just chilling out at a cafe, you know, waiting to get our results. Uh, another friend was with us, Ashley. She was negative. My wife is negative. And then I get mine and it says positive. And I'm like, yeah. oh no. And <laughs> oh, my no. first thought was, do I have COVID? I'm like, I have a little bit of a cough, but I don't, I didn't feel bad. Like my energy yeah. level was fine, everything. Um, so I told Jody, I'm like, just go get on the plane. I'll figure it out because if you stay, there's a chance you may become positive. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen. If I can get it sorted out, great. I'll make the flight. If not, I'm thinking I'll just get a PCR test. It'll show right. that I'm good. And then I'll get on the flight the next day. So long story short, go back over to get testing. And as I'm waiting in line, I'm like, huh, I wonder if I get another antigen test. So if the second one shows negative and I don't have any symptoms, they would assume the first one's a false positive and get up there and that you know you're screwed when you're waiting in line somewhere and you see the person look confused and then they leave and then they bring another person yeah. back and you're like going oh <laughs> no, no. no and she's like no you can't get another antigen test and i said well okay can i get a pcr test i'll stay overnight and she's like no i'm like what do you mean what? no i'll pay for the test and i said there's like you know 40 to 20 percent false positive with a rapid antigen test especially for asymptomatic especially for asymptomatic people right yeah right and she's like no 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 you gotta come with me so they oh escort God. me into this ebola tent where you're kind of treated like <laughs> oh, no. nuclear material and so i was there for like three hours of them explaining to me that no it's just the first test you're barred from any other testing at the airport you cannot come back here you have to stay in the country for at that time they told me uh 10 days we can make it 14 days if you want. And I was like, ah. and there was no way around it. So I ended up um, having to tell them what hotel I was staying at. And they kick you out the back door, put you in a cab and away you go. Um, so I was able to get a PCR test the next day, which was very tricky because I had to find another place to do mm -hmm. it. And I didn't want to list my flight on that because you're on a no fly list. Right. So I asked them when I said, before I get quarantined, I said, well, what can I do? They're like, you have to tell us what hotel and you have to stay in your room. And I'm like, okay, well, do I have to order room service the whole time? Or can I go down to a restaurant that's within the hotel to get food? They're like, oh, that's okay. I'm like, <laughs> naturally, okay. I'm like, could I, could I go for a walk around the hotel? They're like, well, yeah, that's fine. I'm like, 
can I drive to Nicaragua and leave you a flight? They're like, no, they got really mad at me. <laughs> so I ended up um, staying in Costa Rica, living the hotel life for brutal an extra nine days. <laughs> brutal, man. Well, glad you're back in the U.S. safe. Hopefully you had a good trip nonetheless. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I got home and I was like, went for a walk the next day and I'm like, holy shit, it's cold. And I'm like, Oh yeah, within a day there was a hundred degree temperature difference. I left there it was yeah, I love it. Ninety one, and I think when I got up that morning it was like eight below. Speaking nice. of cold, I, I wanted to talk about this with you because you you mentioned you know the cold, and um, you had mentioned that you kind of just did an interview for um, this PTG post traumatic growth, and mm -hmm. and I think there's some element of cold therapy or cold exposure that weaves into this. Could you tell us a little bit about like what that is and why it's potentially relevant? Yeah, so one of the reasons we were down in Costa Rica was we went down there for an interview I did with some friends of mine that are making a documentary on post traumatic growth. Most people have heard of PTSD or PTS or whatever terminology you want to mm -hmm. use with it. But a lot of people, surprisingly, have never heard of the other aspect of that, which is post-traumatic growth. So some people, when they experience a large stressor or trauma, uh, PTSD can definitely happen. And yeah. trying to sort out who it happens to, because you can have people who have, from what the outside appears, like a very similar stressor, especially like in military units. You could have people experience almost yeah. in the same area, being almost sometimes right next to someone. And one person goes on to develop PTSD. One person appears to be better. And some people actually get significantly better. Um, so the question was, like, why is that? Why do some people go one direction versus another direction? And there's lots of reasons for it. It's pretty complicated. But one of the things we understand now is something called uh, stressing or preconditioning. So if we back up and we think like, okay, why would you want to do like cardiovascular exercise, right? You can pull anyone off the street. Any of your listeners would say, yeah, cardiovascular exercise. That's definitely good for my health. Mm -hmm. Cool. And you're absolutely hundred percent correct. But if you think about what's going on during, let's say high intensity exercise, you're literally trying to starve the heart muscle of oxygen, right? And the heart kind of competes on what's this called like just in time. Like you've heard of just in time manufacturing. Like the heart is literally pulling nutrients and oxygen and dropping CO2 literally as it goes right by um, because it's actually moving all the blood around. So you can get some areas of the heart that have a little bit less oxygen than they would under just normal conditions. And it turns out if you take those cells and you stress them a little bit by depriving them a little bit of, of oxygen, for example, when that happens again, or you have something like an MI, so myocardial infarction, a heart attack, you've got a huge blockage and you've got all that downstream tissue that doesn't have oxygen now. And you see a large percent of it then dies. Uh, tissue that's been preconditioned. So had these bouts of pulling out just a little bit less oxygen than kind of what it likes, they actually survive and do better. So if we take that concept of preconditioning, applying some stress to a system, even though it's a very mild stress compared to a system that has not had any mild stress. And then now all of a sudden we apply like a huge stressor to it. Mm -hmm. The system that has been this preconditioned or had this mild stressor applied to it does significantly better than the system who has not had that stressor applied. So a small amount of stressor that you can then recover from uh, actually enables your body to handle much larger insults. So if we go all the way back to potentially PTSD and post-traumatic growth, one of the concepts we've played around with is that are there certain types of stressors you may be able to apply to yourself ahead of time, knowing that you may encounter a large stressor, right? Can you prepare your body and your system, your brain and your physiology to potentially better handle that outcome? And my bias is I think you can. And the next question is, okay, well, what areas would you look at, right? Because there's almost an infinite amount of areas you could say, well, you should do this or this or this or that. So my bias with the framework is what systems in the body does your body absolutely 100% have to hold and control? Otherwise, you're going to be dead, right? I think your body is exquisitely wired in order to survive right? We're always trying to do whatever we can to survive mm -hmm. acutely. That may have chronic uh, long-term complications, 
But acutely, your body is just wired to survive. There's backup systems to the backup systems. If we look at something like temperature, right? Most people would say, okay, our, our humans are what they call homeotherms. We like 98.6, it's actually 97.7, but we have to maintain within a couple degrees above or below mm -hmm. that body temperature. Otherwise we're in a world of hurt and worst case, we possibly die. But we know that there's compensation systems in that. Like if you go out in the heat there and you start exercising, you have a cooling system that's gonna try to cool your body down and prevent that core temperature from going too high. If you're like me and you live in Minnesota, you go outside and you don't have a lot of clothes on, there's mechanisms to try to create more heat, right? To try to keep you and hold you at that temperature. So my bias is looking at these things called the homeostatic regulators, the things that your body absolutely has to hold constant. I think you can train those for a greater capacity and that would then set you up to target the systems that have the most leverage, the most positive transfer to that large insult that may be coming. And so briefly, one of those would be temperature, right? Doing right. some cold exposure and doing some hot exposure would regulate that system better and kind of building up more capacity within that as one of the homeostatic regulators. Interesting. And so it's it sort of sounds like this just adaptive mechanism and basically the idea of exposing ourselves to these hormetic stressors of creating this adaptive response in the body and allowing the body the opportunity to learn how to respond to these small, relatively subtle changes to prepare it for what could potentially be a much bigger stimulus. Certainly you mentioned the temperature regulation. I also immediately started to think about blood sugar regulation and, sure. and, and, and certainly fasting and leveraging yep. various aspects of fasting as those types of adaptive stressors to help the body compensate through those types of situations. Yeah, I would agree. So to me, the third system would be your fuel system, mm. right? Yes. So people have this amazing range of, you know, the fact that someone who doesn't even exercise, who's rather unhealthy and go get a 7-Eleven Slurpee with no ice and <laughs> make it through many, many days and weeks and months just living on that. Now, granted, there's going to be consequences from that. You're going to have blood sugar dysregulation. You're going to have right. all sorts of stuff. But if I put sugar in the gas tank in my car, I'm probably not even making it around the block, right? Yeah. So to me, it's fascinating that you can push your body to an extreme and there's a cost associated with it, but it's generally out in the future. So on one end, we've got glucose. And on the other end, we've got uh, fasting, which is primarily going to rely more on fat. And if that then continues, uh, ketones mm -hmm. would serve to be another energy source. Right. It's amazing to me that you could take someone who's never done a day of fasting, let's say they're 50 years old, let's say they're 50 pounds overweight, don't do a lot of exercise, not the best metabolic health. We could lock them in a room and not feed them, just give them electrolytes and water. And within, you know, one study looked at 48 hours, yeah, 48 hours to maybe three days, they would reliably enter a state of ketosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, their body would start producing ketones even though they've probably never really produced a significant amount of ketones a single day in their life, right? They've never really trained that system, but the body is so wired for survival that at any point in time, starvation not that long ago was like a real threat. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep and we'll hold some of those adaptations just because if we run out of fuel, we know we're dead, right? Yeah. So the body will exert and keep some of these kind of systems active, even though they've never really been used in their entire life. To me, that's just like fascinating. It's, it's extremely fascinating. And so how do we leverage some of these adaptive mechanisms? Um, we could certainly start with the idea of, of cold thermogenesis. And if, if we break it down, because you know, you go on social media, and you see kind of some of the quote, unquote, biohackers or people leveraging ice cold baths, is, is there a, a application for general population? Is it something that's going to drastically increase fat burning capability or significantly increase immune function? Like what are we seeing from a scientific and frankly for you, because you've been in this so long, an anecdotal standpoint as well? Once you have your basics in place, right? So good nutrition, some exercise and relaxation and renew. So sleep, mm -hmm. once you're pretty good on those, right? Those are obviously going to be the basics, which are always, you know, 
never going to be sexy, but always super useful. I do think you can make an argument for adding some type of cold as a homeostatic stressor. In terms of the actual claims of cold, granted, I go super far into this. I have a course on physiologic flexibility where cold is one of them. I was kind of sorely disappointed by most of the claims that were made, to be Mm. honest, because I so wanted them to be true, right? Like I remember reading the stuff about, you know, cold adaptation years ago and on a physics level, it makes sense, right? You're like, okay, if we stick someone in colder water, we know there's going to be a lot of heat loss, right? It takes energy to produce heat. So it makes sense that this should be a way of potentially upregulating metabolism, training your body to produce more energy, like all those things from a physics standpoint make perfect sense. It's like, oh, great. But when I started looking at the research, which goes back quite a bit in time, I could only really find one study that used air temperature and it did see a significant effect in terms of total calories burned, but you had to sit in a very cold, uh, they used like a open air... <laughs> refrigerator in your boxer shorts and a t-shirt for about 45 minutes every day. Or you'd have to do cold water immersion to the point where you're literally teeth chattering, shivering Mm. for quite a bit of time. Sure. So is there a mechanism where that's possible? Yes. Is that a mechanism that most people would do, nor would I recommend? Sadly, probably not. Yeah. Um, So if you look at one of the other claims that, you know, cold water immersion may reduce inflammation. The data on that, at least in healthy individuals who are doing exercise, um, because that's where most of the data on that is from, shows that probably doesn't really affect inflammation. Now, again, you could argue that that data is very preliminary and that's in a very healthy uh, athletic population. If you have pathologies or other diseases, it may be completely different. I just can't find any data on that. So then you're left with, okay, well, why the heck would anyone even bother doing it? You're, you're giving me all the reasons not to do this. And I don't like doing cold anyway. So Who does? I knew I mean, it was a stupid idea, may potentially blood hypertrophy or muscle gain. But yeah. again, that would be getting into cold up to your chin, 50 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 10 minutes and doing it immediately after training, right? So you have those three caveats. So for the average person, they probably don't need to worry about that. Mm-hmm. However, I do think that cold exposure is beneficial. You are training one of the the homeostatic regulators. Uh, What we do find that is true is you do see a big increase in epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline. Uh, You do see some increase in dopamine. So anyone who's done, let's just say cold water immersion and they get done, it feels pretty good. Like you feel awake, you feel pretty recharged, like you feel pretty good. Um, Athletic performance might be beneficial, might not. I said the jury is still kind of out on that. And I think after I've done it myself, we had, you know, COVID and I had a 15.6 freezer in my garage already sealed and filled with water. So I'm like, well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm not teaching anywhere. I'll just start doing cold water immersion every day for who knows how long. And so I did it for about a year and a half every day, like six out of seven days per week. Wow. I started at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. That was just for 30 seconds. Okay. I got down to like, you know, 40, 41 degrees for five to six minutes pretty easily, uh, which is pretty cold. The biggest thing I found was two things. One, I thought that it would get significantly easier, right? Because if anyone's ever done any cold or even just taking a shower and thinking about, I'm going to turn it to cold at the end. There's yeah. always that hesitation of like, this is going to really want to do this. I don't, what am I doing? <laughs> right. I mean, the first time I did it, I'm like, it took me five minutes to talk myself into it. Yep. And I had done it briefly before. So my thought was that Okay, after a year of doing this almost every day, this will get so easy, it'll be almost kind of very routine. And what I found was that right before you get in, there was still that hesitation of this is going to suck. I don't really want to do it. But if I think into the future, aha, I know it'll be better. I'll feel better when I'm done. I know that I'm training a system in my body that will have some positive transfer, some benefits to me. So that was kind of surprising. The second part is, I think the psychological aspect probably outweighs the physiologic aspect for what most people are probably going to do. Meaning that we have to use the new professor part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, to override the limbic sort of hardwired lizard part of our brain, right? Because at the core, your brain is like, hey, dumbass. If you stay in cold water too long, you could die. And that absolutely is 100% true. Granted, you have to be in there for a very long period of time. So there's always that little part of your brain that's like, don't do this. This is a stupid idea. And then you have to use the newer part of your brain to think into the future of the benefits Mm -hmm. and convince yourself to do it. I think running those circuits 
it would have a positive transfer to other aspects of your life. Sure. Right. So look at nutrition, right? You go out to some social function, you're at a buffet, you kind of have to use the new part of your brain to be like, okay, don't eat everything on the buffet. That's probably not going to be the best idea. You know, have some stuff. Great. But the lizard part of your brain is going, Hey, we don't know when food's going to be around again. Eat it all. Look at all this food. You've already paid for it. Like eat yeah. as much as you can. So I think training those circuits and cold water immersion is a way of training yourself to do the harder thing and thinking your way through it and still doing it. I think that has a huge benefit to just many other aspects of your life. It's so interesting that you you mentioned that because that's exactly what I thought of when you were talking about just the, the neurotransmitters and the chemicals mm -hmm. that the brain is producing, norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, adrenaline, right? And one of the things that I thought immediately too is using this type of therapy as a, as a major pattern interrupt for people sure. as just a shift in feedback Safe. loops, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if someone is potentially a binge eater, if someone is potentially an alcoholic or they're trying to reduce their alcohol intake, or they're just simply trying to improve their behaviors around food, around alcohol, in terms of saying, well, what else can I do, right? Because we know that obviously people turn to food, they turn to, to drugs and alcohol as ways to produce those same chemicals in the brain. So what else can I do that can stimulate that part of the brain without obviously doing the things that are not serving me? And so just uh, this completely aside, but I think it would be very, very interesting to throw in this type of therapeutic application as a mechanism to potentially help people start to shift those patterns. For example, in real world could be the person that gets off of work at 5 p.m. and they've had a quote unquote long stressful day and they turn to a glass of wine or right a drink in which case what could they do instead well of course they could go exercise or they could go jump into a cold plunge for 30 seconds and perhaps start to change that feedback loop to the degree that ideally when they're finished, they don't feel like they need that uh, substance anymore. Yeah, I know. I agree with that. It's a way of interrupting your state or like a pattern interrupt. And I think biasing people towards doing hard things that they have to make a, an acute decision but yet there's a reward system on the other side, which to me is just profoundly fascinating. Mm -hmm. The fact that you did the hard thing, you got in, you, you turned your shower to cold for 15 seconds or whatever. After doing that, it's very hard. It's difficult, but you feel better after, right? It's like thinking of exercise, right? Right. Exercise, eh, you know, not a lot of fun, you know, it takes forever to become accustomed to it. Weirdos like us are like, like it, mm -hmm. um, but that's a long-term process. But even someone who's new to it, like after doing a hard session, once they've kind of sort of recovered back to baseline, you're like, oh, yeah, that was kind of good. I, I did feel a little bit better. The runner's high, which is primarily from the endocannabinoid system. We have these also built-in reward systems that seem to also reward us for doing things that are hard that we kind of intuitively know will be beneficial in the long term also. Yeah. And so much so, especially around the psychology of it, of creating that space of checking in with yourself, but also building the confidence and the conviction around being able to do those hard yes. things, being mm -hmm. able to show up to the party and sort of being present enough to say, I can abstain from this, that, and the other, or having the forethought to kind of plan ahead or engaging in exercises or activities that they wouldn't normally be comfortable doing, but by virtue of getting uncomfortable through this adaptive, you know, mechanistic process, whether it's the cold, whether it's the fasting, whether it's some degree of, of shifting your macronutrients, I think lends itself to all of these psychological uh, advantages. So with respect to the cold therapy is okay, there doesn't seem to be much of a fat loss application. And to your point, I, I think there also seems to be some level of sort of metabolic compensation to the degree that if you do, you know, a two or three minute cold plunge, like you could very well, depending on the person, be much hungrier later on in the day, right? And end up for whatever extra calories you burnt, you end up eating that and then some. Yeah, I haven't seen any data looking at cold water in terms of appetite regulation. Mm. Um, but we do see that, especially with higher intensity exercise, right? Totally. Some people I've seen where usually if you do really hard exercise, especially with producing a lot of lactate, you know, for a half hour to an hour afterwards, most people tend not to be very hungry. 
But after that point, when that sort of nausea kind of ugh, feeling wears off, I find some people, it doesn't affect their hunger that much. And some people like myself just get stupid hungry. Totally. Um, lifting does the same thing, right? So I did an experiment. We were in Costa Rica. We were lifting. We This will be published hopefully this year. Two hours a day, pretty hard, pretty heavy, intense stuff. Like the same exercise routine every day for four days in a row. So I helped with data collection in the morning. My buddy Ryan and I did the study in the afternoon. So we lifted then. And, you know, we had plenty of food. We had three meals a day, lots of good food. And I was waking up by the end of day three, like just murdering quest bars at, in the middle of the night, like dead wrappers around my bed in the morning. Because when I do that much output, I just get I like, I can't eat enough, hmm. you know? So I think it's going to vary, but certain things, especially as you go more towards higher intensity exercise does tend to upregulate that in, in some people, lower intensity stuff I found doesn't really seem to upregulate appetite as much. No. And there's some data to support that. So again, if people are listening, this doesn't mean like high intensity exercise is bad. It just means that, Hey, if you're one of those people who you start doing a lot of it, you get really hungry. That may be something to be aware of. So maybe you'll still do that once or twice a week, but you'll shift to doing more low intensity work or you'll do walking or you're what I kind of call sneak calories out of the system without seeing that compensation right. and appetite. The further we get down this road of, of high intensity training, the less and less uh, enamored I am by it, right? Specifically for this reason of, of stimulating appetite and actually more so is really just the, just regulating stress response. And mm -hmm. right, the majority of people, all of us, right? The majority of us are so stressed out. The last thing we need is some ridiculously hard, high intensity interval session. That's even assuming people are actually doing high intensity right. <laughs> exercise, which you and I both know most people aren't. And, and there can't possibly be a, a class, you know, full 30 minute class. Oh, no. 60 minute class, God forbid, that actually is classified as high intensity and we won't get down that rabbit hole but really i do think so much so to your point of of leveraging lower intensity exercise more uh, parasympathetic more calming relaxing activities that can contribute to improving behaviors in other areas um, and managing that body's stress response and so um, we're kind of touched on cold now just briefly is there any immune benefit to yeah cold mm -hmm. I would say there might be. There's some very interesting studies in that area that, in all honesty, I haven't, I can't say I can really make heads or tails out of it, but I would say right now from what I've read, I, I do think that is a potential area that it would be very beneficial for. The other part too is I, I do think there is some profound metabolic changes that still happen especially as you're getting closer to pathologies like type two diabetics mm. or borderline type two, people can do this if they have like full body exposure to cold. I've done it a couple of times now where I took my blood glucose just on my finger before I got in. It was like 85, get in. I think I only did five minutes at like 44 degrees, 45 degrees. And then right as I got out, made sure my hand was warm. My blood glucose was like in the sixties. Mm, so there's a, massive drop in glucose, it appears. There's some preliminary, but very interesting studies about glucose regulation under cold, uh, that it seems to profoundly upregulate it. I think as you drift more towards people who are not as metabolically healthy, I think we'll find my guess is that cold exposure and even sauna, those types of things uh, will have a metabolic health advantage. Mm -hmm. um, sauna in untrained people does show to be on par with cardiovascular training again for untrained people. So yeah, I think there's still some very interesting metabolic adaptations there that we're just starting to realize. Okay. Just back up just for a second. Yeah. You said sauna, sauna therapy can be on par with cardiovascular adaptations. Explain that for yeah. us. So if you think about what's going on, when you get in a sauna, you do have an elevated heart rate but yet you're not really moving, right? Mm -hmm. You're not doing formal exercise. Um, there's also other adaptations that happened. The One of the main ones is an increase in what they call plasma volume, just the amount of fluid your body is pushing around. Um, so they used to do this, you know, in athletes that if you could just increase your fluid level, you're moving around before the body compensates and realizes that this is happening and you just piss it all out. Uh, you do see a performance bump from that which is also why dehydration is so bad for performance. So if we can just give you more fluid to move around, 
That's going to be easier for your cardiac system. You'll see an increase mm -hmm. in performance. Um, so that does happen with, with sauna. So in a study, they looked at untrained people. They compared uh, one group who did cardiovascular training and one group who only did sauna. And this was low to moderate cardiovascular training. And what they found was equivalent results with exercise at the end of that study. Granted, short-term study, and again, these were untrained people. So for someone who isn't able to do a lot of cardiovascular exercise, sauna may be one benefit of exercising their heart in a specific way. The data, if you are more cardiovascularly trained, it's kind of hit or miss. Like most of it right now would say maybe. But if you go one step down, you look at the mechanisms of how it may increase uh, cardiovascular performance between exercise and sauna, the mechanisms are slightly different. So what I've done with high-end athletes, which may not be your audience, is yeah, like do your aerobic training. Once you've kind of reached that plateau, I'll add sauna in addition mm -hmm. to their training and see if we get a further bump in it once they've kind of maxed out exercise. Will you play around with fluid ingestion? Yeah, I generally want a lot of salt and a lot of fluid. Like I'll push both of those like higher and higher. Yeah. Again, in people who don't have any salt sensitive hypertension. When you say improved cardiovascular benefits, like what, what does that mean? For most people, they can see potentially a drop in blood pressure. So we know blood pressure, hypertension is very sensitive to even small amounts of just aerobic exercise. Maybe better blood glucose regulation that hasn't really been uh, directly studied. Most people just generally feel better. So yeah. if you test people for what's called their aerobic metabolism, how well they can use oxygen and create energy, if that's very low, right, they have a low what's called VO2 max, the volume of oxygen you can just run through your system, right? Think of like a small engine, like the old three-cylinder Yugos compared to like a large eight-cylinder engine, right? The more energy you can run through your system and produce the better most people feel because that's mm. what you're running on, you know, 90% of your day. Um, and so I've tested people if they have a very low aerobic level, like in the bottom, say 20% of a population, almost all the time they report that like, yeah, I'm super tired. I sleep, I do everything correct. And I just, I don't feel good. I've been to my doc. I have no pathologies. I have no disease. Like I can't figure out what's going on and just getting them up to, you know, 50% of the population. They're like, Oh my God, I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. I wake up, I have energy. Um, so I think Looking at just your baseline level of aerobic metabolism is something people may consider if they feel like their energy level is real low and they're kind of doing yeah. all the other things correct, right? They're getting their sleep, they're getting nutrition, their stress is manageable. That would be the one thing to look at too. You know, the, the direct application that I think about, I mean, obviously just from a general standpoint, it sounds like everyone could benefit to some degree, especially if they're not very physically active as a, as a easy way, you know, whether it be obviously just low intensity aerobic activity, but also is some sauna therapy, sure. but yeah. specifically is for people that may be immobile in some capacity, right? Or, or yes. even maybe if we're talking about a significantly overweight person who may have neuropathies, have a really hard time moving around. Maybe they live in Minnesota and they can't go jump in the pool, you know, yeah. <laughs> to, to exercise is like, Hey, what if we could get you in a sauna as a means to start to improve right? That, that cardiorespiratory fitness, perhaps it would lend itself to improvement in blood pressure, you know, maybe some caloric expenditure, maybe a reduction in resting heart rate, those types of things. So that's, that's super interesting, man. That's super yeah. interesting. And you can look at like the, the long-term studies they've done in Finland showing, you know, huge drops in all-cause mortality, right? So how long people live before they drop dead, yeah. Some of that may be sauna, some of that may be social, but there've been multiple studies now showing the huge improvements for, you know, semi-daily use of a sauna. But again, the nice part is if you are untrained and you haven't done a lot of these things, you don't need a lot of the stimulus to see a benefit, right? Yeah. So getting in a sauna for just five minutes and starting to sweat, yeah, you're probably going to see some benefit from it. You don't need to go crazy and live in there for right. an hour a day, right? That's going to yeah. be counterproductive. That's very cool. Um, and I think it should be reassuring for people because it, again, dose response, like you don't yeah. need a lot. And, no. and I think people think that they need to, all of a sudden they need to go keto, they need to intermittent fast, and right. they need to go do freaking cold plunges and saunas in order to be successful. And that could, that's the, you know, the furthest thing from the truth. So I guess shifting the topic, because we talked about cold thermogenesis, let's just talk about sort of this adaptive process around intermittent fasting. And we're very clear around a, a caloric management standpoint of whichever type of intermittent fasting you want to do, I think it's very well recognized. That is the main application. 
but I'd be very interested in hearing from you around sort of the physiological implications as it pertains to perhaps blood sugar, insulin management, and, and what you've observed. There's some very interesting adaptations with uh, fasting. So if we think real simply with fasting, what's going on, you're dropping your levels of insulin lower and lower, right? Now, even if you have sort of a pathology type two diabetic, whatever, it may take you longer for your blood glucose levels to go down. But um, in those populations, it still works pretty good. Obviously, talk to your physician, make sure fasting is appropriate for you, yada, 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 all the caveats. Totally. And when insulin is lower, insulin is going to push you to use more fats as a fuel. So if we think about what happens, let's say, let's say with a type two diabetic, most people think of that and they go, oh yeah, you've got problems with blood glucose. And that is hundred percent true. Some glucose comes in insulin, glucose production, just not regulated very well. However, what happens is the body is trying to compensate for this. So what you'll see is that insulin levels go higher and higher and higher because your body is saying, Hey, we can't have high levels of blood glucose just around period right? It's going to be very toxic if they get to extreme levels. So we're going to do everything we can to give your body the signal to get some of that glucose out. We don't even care where we put it, stuff it in the liver, put it in muscle, convert it to fat, don't care, get it the hell out of the bloodstream. So what it does primarily is it's going to increase insulin, right? Insulin is this bigger driver to take glucose and get it the heck out of the bloodstream. What happens then is as insulin levels go higher and higher, you have this baseline level of high insulin most of the time. And when that starts happening, your body can't downregulate as well to use fat, right? So if you remember, low levels of insulin pushes your body to use more fat, high levels of insulin push your body to use more glucose. And what happens then is you become very metabolically inflexible. Like you have a hard time using glucose on the right end of the spectrum, and now you can't downregulate and use fat as well on the left end of the spectrum. So you're literally getting crushed from both ends of the main two fuel sources, which isn't going to end well. So I think one of the benefits of fasting is that sort of left end of the spectrum. You're lowering insulin levels because you don't have this high insult of glucose coming in. By definition, you're fasting. You're not consuming anything. And over time, insulin levels go down and that starts to upregulate your body to use fat as a fuel again. It may change uh, insulin sensitivity at the liver or the muscle level. The research goes back and forth on that, um, but it appears to help both ends of the spectrum. And it's something that most people can do, again, starting in a very progressive manner. It may just be simply an overnight fast. There's different types of fasting. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, caloric control right? So mm -hmm. we know that if you take people who are, you know, moderately healthy, but say not doing a lot of exercise, a little bit low on sleep, high on stress, and you just feed them a just piss ton of calories, they are going to get closer to a pathology just mm -hmm. from too much fuel running through their system. It's just going to overspill and start to, to run amok. So fasting does counteract that too. Interesting. So when would you see that intermittent fasting would be applicable for the average population? When I started doing stuff for like the flex diet cert, I started playing around with intermittent fasting 11 or 12 years ago now. And the first time I heard about it, a uh, shout out to Brad Pilon, his book, Eat, Stop, Eat had just come out. And I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of, right? Because I'm like, hey, you got to eat all the time. You know, you got to keep muscle protein synthesis going. We want to add all this yeah, muscle totally. and it's going to fuel your metabolic rate and all this stuff that we've you know, kind of shown half truth uh, right now. So I started looking at it. And my thought was, I'm going to show him that this is all wrong. His book is just a pile of shit. And it's like, fuck, he's actually right. Mm. <laughs> you know, so after like nine months, I was yeah. like, oh, all the muscle isn't going to fall off your body. No. Maybe there is some benefits to this. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a 24 hour fast. And I was one of those guys who ate every two to three hours. The fasting went horrible. I ran across the street to a Chinese buffet like 12 hours in and was there for like two hours eating everything, right? Because my appetite got so high and I just, I was not adapted to going for periods of time without food. So I did this a couple more times and then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I should probably add fasting in as a progressive manner, right? So I guess if you right. came over to my gym and you've never lifted in your entire life, and we go in the garage and I just put 405 on the bar and just yell at you like, come on, bro, like try harder, right? It, unless you're Andy Bolton, like it, it's, it's probably not going to come up on day one if you've never trained, right? Right. But you could start at 95 pounds, 135, 225, right. doesn't matter. You can start wherever your capacity was. So I said, oh, okay. So take one day per week 
and let's say 12 hours overnight, that's your whole goal. You stop eating at 8 p.m., you have breakfast Monday morning at 8 a.m., right? 12 hours, great. You did a 12-hour fast, perfect. Don't worry about anything else. Take the next Monday and see if you can add two hours to that, right? So you stop eating at 8 p.m. Sunday night. Can you eat breakfast at 10 a.m.? Go another week, next Monday. Can you go till noon, right? Stop eating Sunday night, 8 p.m. Maybe move your breakfast till lunch because I find some people just love their breakfast. And sure. if you tell them to skip breakfast, they freak out. So don't have your lunch, have your breakfast. Great, now you've made it 16 hours, right? So you're just taking one day per week, adding a couple hours to it, and what I found was most people within six to eight weeks could relatively easily do one fast of 19 to 24 hours. Um, and I found that that was pretty significant to kind of get a lot of the benefits from it mm. uh, without having it be really hard. And I was surprised yeah. that if it's done in that progressive manner, the compliance was actually quite high. Like I found it was easier for clients and myself to do a period of fasting. And I tried like low calorie stuff. I tried protein only. I tried protein and vegetables only. I tried all sorts of things. And I just found that like fasting from a compliance standpoint was actually one of the easier things to do, which still is kind of surprising to me. I mean, it makes sense when you have some hard rules around, like, right. just don't eat food. It's right. like, okay, well, I don't eat, like, I don't have to worry about anything. Like, it's not like just, you know, don't eat carbs or like, right, right just only eat steak. I mean, as easy as that would seemingly be, um, just don't eat food. And so, I mean, would it be fair to say that most people should be fasting for 12 hours at least every day? Maybe. Again, it goes back to, you know, what are your goals, right? If you said sure. someone is... Yeah, trying to modulate, you know, caloric intake, doing some light exercise, you know, not training super hard, but you're trying to be healthy, limited on time. Yeah, I think 12 hours is, is probably probably a good good marker overall. I don't know if I'm trying to justify all of this in one is saying, is there an application for leveraging all of this for someone that's just trying to improve their health, their longevity? Um, their energy levels, you know, and saying, okay, well, if we can implement some aspect of intermittent fasting, let's just say that, you know, regardless, they have a caloric control, they're in maintenance, mm -hmm. regardless, and they're happy with their body composition and, you know, their, their, their muscle mass and saying, okay, w would it make sense to implement some level of intermittent fasting just as a health means, right? Would it make sense to implement some uh, contrast or heat therapy just from a, a health means, would it make sense to play around with periods of, and this kind of goes into your metabolic flexibility, but periods of lower calorie intake or higher fat intake and ketogenic dieting and so on and so forth of just kind of cycling through these modalities as a, from a health standpoint? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think the key part is maintaining the capacity, right? So for fasting, what I find is for myself, I do longer fast overnight, which will vary. Mm -hmm. And if I'm trying to add a little bit more muscle and I'm not really worried about, you know, losing weight or anything like that, I'm just trying to maintain where I'm at. I'll do a longer fast once every three weeks. And I find that that frequency in most people is enough to hold that capacity where someone showed up at my door and said, Hey man, you can't eat for 24 hours. I'm like, Okay, I can do okay. this. It's, it, it's possible, <laughs> yeah. right? If I, you know, I start getting out and haven't done a longer fast in a month or so, eh, the capacity is a, mm -hmm. a little bit harder. I yeah. think if you are trying to get a little bit ahead in metabolic health and lose weight, then once per week is probably a, a pretty good frequency. Cool. Um, so I go more by what is the amount that you need to maintain that capacity? So how often do you need to train that system specifically to hold on to the ability to do it? I like it. And and I think it really goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It's just implementing um, ways to help us get uncomfortable and yes. to, to kind of dig into discomfort and from a physiological level, from a behavioral level, because you and I both know that's absolutely necessary for growth in every aspect of our lives. And so it only makes sense. And I think that by virtue of, you know, what you were describing about how tightly regulated the human body is and how marvelous it is at maintaining that, that homeostatic, you know, regulation is we can and should do stuff like that because that's ultimately kind of the way the body was built is to be able to endure those types of adaptive stimuli. Yeah. And the nice part is for people listening is at face value, it sounds like this is a massive undertaking and a lot of time, but when you break it down 
it's not really that bad, right? So if you think about fasting, if you do it in a progressive manner, you actually get time back because you're literally not making meals for that period of time. So fasting, you get time back. Cold exposure, yeah, start turning your shower to cold for 10 or 15 seconds, right? What does that cost you? 10, 15 seconds, right? If you haven't done much exercise, yeah, do some exercise a couple hours a week, total time maybe. It's an investment in time, but you don't have to do 10 hours a week. The nice part is for most people who are listening to this, there's ways of adding these things in that they are going to take some time. They're going to take some effort, but it's not usually as bad as what they think, right? Because mm-hmm. most people go on the internet and they'll be like, oh my God, I haven't done any aerobic training. I got to do like, oh, mm-hmm. this guy says 10 hours a week to see any benefit. Run a half marathon. It's like, no, just like I've had people who have a rower in their garage, like, uh, your job is to get on the rower this week and literally go one minute, breathe in and out through your nose, just do one minute. And now what? Next week, you'll do two minutes, but get in the habit of doing that six days a week. Yeah. So it just becomes part of your routine. And over time, that that definitely builds, right? And people will be like, ah, one minute a day, that's not going to make any difference. It's like, well, how much were you doing before? Zero, right? So one's better. <laughs> it's totally better. <laughs> you know, and it's the thought process around trying to be opportunistic and yes. um, and really learning how our body functions and embracing not just trying to white knuckle something because you think it's going to help you lose some body fat or, or gain some muscle mass, but rather understanding the nuances of how your own body functions, becoming your own best nutrition detective of saying, well, how do I actually feel when I do this? Like, are you, you've, you've been implementing intermittent fasting and you are absolutely miserable and you find that you end up just overeating for the rest of the day. Okay, cool. Like maybe you can acknowledge that maybe it's not a good fit for you. Maybe you were overly ambitious about the amount of time that you committed to Yes. and use that as a learning opportunity rather than saying, you know what, just wipe my hands clean. It just didn't work for me. I'm going to move on to the next quote unquote fad. So I, I think that it's it's important and and kind of certainly one of the things that I appreciate about all of these modalities that are present today that we can leverage for our well-being is people need the opportunity to really be exposed to these to identify if and how it works for them so that they can just decide right how to live healthier moving forward because we can't tell them how to do it of course we can guide them before i i let you go i i really want to jump into your physiologic flexibility certification can you just mm-hmm. give us a quick uh, summary of what that entails yeah so like i said once you've got you know exercise nutrition and recovery rest are are pretty good then to me this is like the next level so what we do is you look at what are the the four homeostatic regulators, the systems that your body absolutely has to hold constant. So you've got temperature. The other one is pH. So just the acidity and alkalinity of your blood. Third would be glucose and ketones, your fuel system. Those would be the two ends. And the last one would be how you regulate oxygen and CO2. So in English, what that means is the interventions you're doing are, you know, cold exposure, sauna exposure low intensity exercise, some high quality, high intensity exercise, a little bit more infrequent, potentially fasting. Maybe you run a ketogenic diet, like for four weeks out of the year and then breathing techniques. How can you do like a breath hold or like a Wim Hof, like a super ventilation where you're breathing really fast. Um, Those have multiple different effects with regulating oxygen, CO2 and pH changes. So if you take all those systems, There's a lot of the research into what does it say? What are the benefits? What are the pros? What are the cons? When should you do it? When should you not do it? So you understand the context. And then the big picture is looking at physiologic flexibility. Like how can you be a just more robust, harder to kill organism, Mm -hmm. like at a base level so that when those periods of stressors come in, you've got that preconditioning already set up. And hopefully that'll bias you towards like a post-traumatic growth scenario. And then the last part of it is, there's five specific action items for each one, right? So there's four systems. Each one has kind of a top and a bottom. So there's eight. And then you've got five action items for each eight. So you've got 40 action items uh, that you can pick from so that they're scalable to what you're doing. You're like, maybe you don't have access to a sauna. So there's other things you can do with like exercising in the heat or putting clothes on and then exercising. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways you can get at these systems. And then how do you set that up with the particular action items? And then the last part is there's overlap between a lot of the systems. So by definition, if I'm doing meditation outside sunlight exposure and I'm picking like a Wim Hof technique, I'm doing fast, super uh, ventilation, breathing really, really fast. And I'm also doing a breath hold. 
right? So that's going to hit like three of the systems there. So just because there's four systems, there's ways you can do one activity and hit multiple systems. So you don't have to spend like your whole day, like trying to figure out how to add all this stuff in. <laughs> that's awesome, man. I mean, that's the same way that you laid out the Flex, yes, Flex Diet certification, which was fantastic. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And it's so much of what we just talked about, but specifically the action items for each. So for any coaches listening, I'd strongly encourage the Flex Diet certification, even if you are not a trainer or a coach and you love this stuff and you you know you enjoy what we talk about on this podcast and you're going to absolutely love the information shared in dr mike's flex diet certification so i don't know if is that actually open for registration at the moment not right now but if they just go to for either cert they can just go to flexdiet.com f-l-e-x-d-i-e-t.com click on the waiting list up there and that'll put them on the newsletter and then once it opens again they'll have all the information via the newsletter and the newsletter is free Amazing, man. And and is there another best place to follow your work? Um, so that's probably the best place. Uh, the main website is just MikeTNelson.com, which has all the information, the podcast. There's also the Flex Diet podcast, where you've got just different information from researchers or just random chats with with people I like. And yeah, so it's been a lot of fun to do that too. Awesome. Well, make sure you guys head over to uh, the Flex Diet website, get signed up for Dr. Mike's email list. Uh, I, I appreciate your emails, your musings. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, it's always good, good, relatable information expressed in a, in a really nice way. So thanks for everything you do, Dr. Mike. Thanks for coming back on the show. And I hope you have a great rest of your week. I'll catch up with you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, brother. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you in your nutrition journey for free. One, grab a free copy of my Fat Loss Fix Guide at fatlossfixguide.com. Two, Join my free group at smartnutritionmadesimple.com. Three, subscribe to my YouTube channel at smartnutritionmadesimpletv.com. Four, leave a five-star rating and positive review so that we can gain access to more nutrition experts ready to share their knowledge with you and ultimately help more people make smart nutrition simple. 